Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about two events in the history of the mob. The Schofield flower shop murder of arch killer Dean O'Banion, and the ballistics expert Calvin Goddard, who did forensic work on the scene of the Valentine's Day Massacre. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Florist Dean O'Banion loved to arrange flowers. In fact, he was arranging chrysanthemum bouquets for a large funeral when Frankie Yale showed up at his shop. O'Banion knew Yale, assumed he was there to pick up flowers, reached out to shake his hand. Yale and the two men with him pulled out pistols and shot O'Banion dead. You see, Dean O'Banion was more than just a florist. He was one of the most influential gangsters in Chicago, a rival to Al Capone, and his death would spark many more murders in Chicago's infamous Beer Wars, which would culminate in the shocking 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The life of Chicago's arch-killer, Dean O'Banion, deserves to be remembered. O'Banion was born on July 8, 1892, to Irish Catholic parents in the central Illinois town of Maroa. It was a small place, and as of the 2016 census, still has a population of less than 2,000. Most of the residents of Maroa were employed at a nearby cigar factory, though O'Banion's father, Charles, worked as a barber. He was still young, only nine, when his mother contracted tuberculosis and later died. During her treatment, Emma O'Banion was taken to a sanatorium where her child could not visit her because of the risk of infection, but he wrote her notes, which showed his affection. One began, Dear Mama, I love you awful well. When he was grown, O'Banion replaced her original wooden grave marker with a fine stone monument and returned to Maroa every year to decorate his mother's grave with flowers. His life changed radically when O'Banion's family moved north to an area of Chicago called Kilgubbin, or more menacingly, Little Hell. In August 1865, the Chicago Times described Kilgubbin as a safe retreat for criminals, policemen not venturing to invade its precincts or even cross the border without having a large reserve force. The rough neighborhood, originally named after a location in Ireland, shaped O'Banion's early life. He took up with a street gang of other youngsters named the Little Hellions and formed friendships which would endure the rest of his life. O'Banion was probably stealing a ride on a streetcar, called bumper riding, when he fell off and the car rolled over his left leg. The accident left him with one leg about an inch shorter than the other and a limp, earning him the derisive nickname of Gimpy. However, if someone used that name, O'Banion was known to beat the other person within an inch of his life. He attended Holy Name School for Boys on North Sedgwick Street in Chicago. According to historians, O'Banion had a lovely tenor voice and could be found singing in the choir. 
His classmates knew him as a charming and easygoing person. One of his childhood friends later said, He was always full of the devil and having fun. O'Banion had fair hair, brown eyes, and a cherubic round face. In addition to his natural charisma, he had a habit of calling everybody swell fellow. He continued doing that even in his later violent years with people that he battled. James Bennett, a Chicago journalist, said he would bestow upon you swell fellow even when his address was in your death book. O'Banion's early religious upbringing would show later in his life. Though he provided illicit alcohol to huge swaths of Chicago, according to some, he refused to drink any of it himself. He also refused to make a profit from prostitution, another major money-making enterprise for less scrupulous mobsters. After he dropped out of school, he began working as a singer-waiter for Bob McGovern at McGovern's Saloon and Cabaret. With a tinny piano playing in the background, O'Banion would serenade patrons of the saloon with Irish folk songs. He also earned money as a newspaper boy, selling papers for minuscule profits. He quickly discovered that illicit activity like robbing drunks with the rest of the little hellions made more money than legitimate jobs. Slowly, O'Banion was sinking into a life of crime. He served two terms in Bridewell, also called the House of Corrections, before he turned 21 years old. This jail time served for burglary and carrying concealed weapons were the only infractions to land O'Banion behind bars. The rest of his life, O'Banion had the clout and connections to avoid being sentenced. He was active in what has been called the Newspaper Wars of Chicago, in which O'Banion and his associates would travel from shop to shop, strongly encouraging the owners to sell whichever newspaper was paying them the most for their services that week. If threats of violence failed, O'Banion and company didn't hesitate to use their fists to force the shop owners into compliance. Power and money began flowing to O'Banion with the start of Prohibition in the 1920s. With his lifelong friends helping him, O'Banion began supplying illegal booze to everyone in need of a drink on Chicago's north side. Historians believe he was one of the first to develop the idea of stealing alcohol from other mobsters, nabbing nearly $100,000 worth of merchandise from another gang in Chicago. The speakeasy business exploded as Prohibition continued. Historians estimate that O'Banion and his crew bought in more than $1 million in profits in one year. They made their headquarters in the William F. Schofield Flower Shop, a business that actually sold flowers and made a good front for their more lucrative trade of bootlegged alcohol. With money and influence driving him, O'Banion began flexing his muscles in politics. He held expensive fundraising dinners for his hand-picked candidates, flouting his ill-gotten gains in front of Chicago's rich and powerful. In addition to picking his favorites, O'Banion's henchmen wandered around the polls in his territory in the 42nd and 43rd wards of the city on election day and, similar to his newspaper war tactics of an earlier era, encouraged Chicago citizens to vote for those the mob boss selected. Author Richard Lindbergh, in his book Gangling Chicago, writes, The commonly asked question on Election Day, who will carry the 42nd and 43rd, had an obvious answer. O'Banion, in his pistol pockets. O'Banion was known to carry up to three guns on his person at all times, and he had his reasons. He was in a territory dispute with Papa Johnny Torrio and his lieutenant, Al Scarface Capone. O'Banion and the Irish mob generally ran the north side of Chicago while the Italians and Sicilians ran the south side. When the Jenner brothers, who were Sicilian, began to sell alcohol up north, O'Banion came down on them like a hammer. He stole an expensive shipment of their product and wasn't afraid to badmouth them in public, reportedly saying, to hell with those Sicilians. He attempted to frame Al Capone's outfit for the murder of John Duffy, which most historians believe he committed. O'Banion told reporters at the time, Whatever happened to Duffy is out of my line. I don't mix with that kind of riffraff. He stirred up more bad blood when he managed to swindle Torrio out of almost $500,000 in a deal. 
Finally, his fate was sealed after he refused to forgive the debt of one of the Jenner brothers. Obinion threatened and bullied Torio and the Jenner brothers, all the while selling the families of deceased mobsters beautiful flower arrangements to grace their coffins. On November 10, 1924, he was filling an order for more than $10,000 of flowers for Mike Merlot, a mobster who had passed away benignly from cancer, when a call came into the flower shop that someone was coming to pick up the arrangement. What happened next was witnessed by William Crutchfield, O'Banion's porter who worked in the shop, and three small schoolboys from Holy Name School for Boys, O'Banion's alma mater, who were walking home from school to go to lunch. Crutchfield told police three well-dressed and smooth-shaved men walked into the shop while he was sweeping the floor up front. O'Banion greeted them with his trademark friendliness and smile and said, Hello boys, you here for Merlot's flowers? Crutchfield said, seeing as O'Banion knew the men, he didn't view them as a threat and moved to the back room to finish cleaning. He said a short time later he heard shots and ran back out front to see O'Banion bleeding to death from five bullets in his face, throat, and chest. The police, called to the scene by those in the neighborhood, positively identified the man in the shop as O'Banion. They searched his body and discovered a pistol in his pocket, an extra clip of ammunition for the gun, and $575 in cash. Robbery was ruled out as a motive after that point, but no one was overly surprised by O'Banion's violent end. Morgan Collins, the chief of police at the time, reportedly said, I had expected him to be killed, and so had he. No one was ever convicted of the crime, though it is commonly assumed that most in Chicago's underworld knew exactly who had pulled the trigger. Torrio and Capone were pulled in for questioning by police, but both said they had recently put in thousands of dollars of orders for flowers from Schofield, apparently trying to prove their innocence by where their money flowed. The police released both. When the authorities went to O'Banion's home to notify his wife, they said some of her first words were, Is he dead? Tell me, before she was overcome with emotion. The boys, who had witnessed the shooting, ran back to the school and fetched a priest, who entered the shop to give the fallen mobster his last rites. But the church washed its hands of O'Banion after that, refusing to perform a service for him at the graveyard. They were apparently the only ones to avoid his funeral. Thousands of Chicagoans showed up to view O'Banion in his bronze and silver casket as he traveled through Chicago's north side one last time. Over 25 carloads of flowers were delivered to the florist's own funeral, a testament to his influence. He is buried at Mount Carmel Cemetery, which would have been a few blocks from his old flower shop. Where the original Schofield's Flowers building once stood is now a parking lot. The Northside gang retaliated for O'Banion's murder, going after the Jenner brothers and John Torrio himself. Torrio was so surprised by the attack that he had groceries in both arms when he was wounded by the bullets. He survived and refused to cooperate with police or identify his attackers, but a short time later he left Chicago and gave control of his gang over to Al Capone. Capone famously put an end to the beer wars with the brutal 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre and the Northside Gang pretty much disappeared from the streets of Chicago. But That's another story for another episode. One last anecdote shows the impact that O'Banion had on the mob in Chicago because Dean O'Banion was thought to be the man who brought the Thompson submachine gun into the fray. The story is that he had gone to Colorado on vacation and picked up the guns there, but had died before he could use them. But after his death, the three guns were passed out to his men, who used him in what some historians believe were the first incidents of mob violence to use the infamous Tommy gun in Chicago history. A fitting legacy for the man that the Chicago Tribune called one hard-boiled florist. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just talked about, what we're going to talk about, and of course, some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. 
There's something kind of simultaneously ridiculous and weirdly understandable, I feel like, in the whole mobster thing, that this arch killer enjoyed something, like, <laughs> seems to have legitimately enjoyed something like flower yes, arranging. Absolutely. And it seems like it was not just a just a front. No, uh, by all accounts, uh, Dean O'Banion, uh, press called him Dion, but his, his, his name was really Dean, but by all accounts, O'Banion, uh, he needed a front for his mob business. And they used the Schofield Flower Shop as that front. But by all accounts, he legitimately enjoyed flowers and, and was legitimately talented at flower arrangements. And it's that, yeah. I mean, and it, there's just something so bizarre and ironic that he's primarily arranging flowers for mob funerals, uh, for mob violence that he's clearly <laughs> in the middle of. Yeah, and it's strange. At, at least it's some very, of which he was probably yeah. responsible for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an it's a really interesting, but weirdly, it does seem like ah, you know that that uh, the the joke uh, that these you know these hard men also have like these like have normal people hobbies. Yeah, well, uh, you and, know, I, I, I mean, it is a surprise. I mean, you find out. I mean, in some ways, uh, that uh, people who are you know, for it, it throughout history, if you look at it, you know, people who seem to have made a mark in history for whatever reason, notorious or famous, uh, also are normal people who have you know normal interests. And but I mean, yes, you you would not necessarily guess that a ruthless mob boss who started the Chicago uh, beer wars uh, was a was a florist who really enjoyed the smell of flowers and was talented at flower arranging. Yes, actually, actually enjoyed being a florist, and it's it is interesting how it how it ties in with you know the mob stuff that they were doing too. That he uh, was actually he was doing, and he was actually preparing and... for a mob funeral. That's what he thought he thought they were coming to collect when they came to kill him. So I mean, it's yeah, it's it's a very very strange story. You know, an odd story here is that we were uh, a long time after the episode came out though, but I was contacted by someone who now owns that shop. Uh, was asking what huh. pictures I had of the inside because they were looking if they could restore it to what it looked like then. Uh, and uh, so I, I only had, you know, there's only a couple of pictures of, of anything inside the Schofield Flower Shop. And most of the pictures in the episode are not of the, I mean, we've got just one of the outside of the flower shop. But uh, it's interesting that we had someone who come back and say, you know, I've got that shop now and, I'm try- and I'd like to restore, <laughs> restore it to when it was a mob flower shop. That's an interesting story. <laughs> uh, uh. That's kind of an interesting. To be honest, if 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 they do restore it, I, I'd be kind of interested in seeing it. And going and going to see what it's a, like. It's that's yeah. it's funny how our reach is that way because we've been contacted by people that were part of the episode. You know, uh, uh, someone who was the son or the husband or, or someone of someone that's in one of the episodes, and they come back and say, uh, uh, you know, or uh, one of them was a was a daughter of someone that had been one. She said he never told me his story. Uh, and uh, and now you know I learned about it in your in your history guy episode. So that's that's happened for you know maybe a dozen episodes we, that we've been contacted by someone who was somehow impacted by part of the story and and then saw us doing it. So I thought that was really funny. It's, yeah, and I did try to research yeah. for him you know best I could because uh, you know I'm obviously not in Chicago where I could go dig through in the public library or anything like that. Best I could, and she got a couple of pictures I think of things inside the the shop. Yeah. Yeah, there, there might be some. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that might not be digitized that exists somewhere. But yeah, I wouldn't be uh, surprised. Be yeah, find. but I, you know, I don't know how many people were taking photographs inside. You know, the Schofield Flower Shop. I would imagine that, or thinking that it was important well, enough to you know keep I mean, around. It's, it's where he was running his mob business, so I imagine he, he probably didn't like a lot of uh, recording of <laughs> information going on inside. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the whole thing was a mob fair. front. So maybe you know they were. <laughs> Maybe they were somewhat circumspect about what they what they allowed to watch going on. Yeah, they might be kind of suspicious if someone comes around with a camera. Hey, can, that's... <laughs> can I take some pictures of your flower shop? Yeah, yeah, you might get in trouble for that. That's you might end up with a flower arrangement at your, at your funeral. <laughs> uh, it, I kind of think it's. Uh, I, I mean, the whole the mob thing was obviously, of course, very very serious. I mean, these are mm-hmm. people uh, committing crimes and who are willing to kill over it. 
but there is something a little comical too about the, the a war over beer and that we yeah. they call those the beer wars yeah. and it, it really is kind of a, a period of contradictions and absolutely yeah i mean that was that was really what happened with prohibition it was supposed to decrease violence it yeah. was supposed to and uh, it ended up creating violence and uh, and that was the reason why the the population shifted against it probably it was probably i mean some would kind of argue that people decided they like liquor because they were drinking in speakeasies uh because suddenly it was forbidden but i mean it's probably lousy liquor that you're drinking in a speakeasy really what probably. the big driver behind uh, repeal was was that it had increased violence and that violence was getting a lot of attention of course chicago is not the only place that was going on but it's certainly one of one of the great examples of that going on. So people saying, this has not made my life safer. This has not made my life worse. Well, and apparently opened up uh, entire industries, entire criminal industries. Yes. To, uh, which, and, and which is not what that's they an, That's do, an interesting, but... you know, bit of sensibility. At one point uh, in the territory wars, uh, Torrio offered uh, O'Banion some uh, some slice of some prostitution business, uh, trying to trade territory. O'Banion didn't believe in prostitution. He was disgusted by it. And uh, so he didn't want to have anything to do with the brothel. Mm. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear how different the mobsters, I mean, you don't really think about that, right? It's the different scruples of the various mobsters yeah. and of, you know, what they, what they wanted. So, yeah, it's, uh, uh, O'Banion drew, O'Banion drew the line yeah, at, at, at prostitution. prostitution. didn't like well, prostitution, but I understand that, uh, Al Capone didn't like drugs. I didn't think that they should be dealing in drugs. So it's, uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're just different, I don't know, different, uh, and uh, there was George Looney. We did an episode on George Looney. Uh, that that was the one that, that Al, Al Capone went and met him and said, "I don't ever want to go back there. That Irishman's crazy. <laughs> you're, you're the mobster that was too scary for Al Capone." <laughs> Al Capone was like, "Nope." Was like, Didn't no. like that guy's vibe at all. That's, that's that's how they live. It kind of seems like what what finally gets O'Banion is he seems awfully confident. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to me that he he didn't seem to have any guards on hand. He didn't have anyone. At, I, I yeah, mean, I, they walked I, I in. guess he felt secure in the flower shop or he thought that was his territory because he was really the instigator that was causing, you know, a mob war at the time. And he was really yeah. pushing some buttons, uh, some specific stuff he was doing. He was yelling at someone about a gambling debt. He was raiding someone else's beer trucks. He was he was aggressively fighting for territory. Uh, in a lot of ways, Torrio was trying to be a peacemaker. If you can imagine that, the Chicago, what ended up being called the Chicago gang, uh, uh, was trying to be a peacemaker with the Northside gang. So you would think at that point that, you know, that he realized that, you know, someone could be violent. But apparently he just came in completely trusting that these two mobs, people he knew to be mobsters, were only there to pay for flowers. Yeah. And uh, so, I, you know, that, that, that idea of putting a direct hit on a, on a mob boss uh, that was kind of newer there. I mean, I think he maybe he thought he was high enough up that he was uh, that you couldn't. But it's interesting because one of the uh, one of the guys uh, that was probably one of the two that uh, uh, was participated in the murder, and that's John Scalise. Uh, he he apparently was bragging he had just been kind of moved up, uh, and he was bragging that he was untouchable. Uh, and uh, the scene from the movie The Untouchables, where Al Capone beats a guy to death with a baseball bat, that is probably based on something Al Capone did to Scalise. So he thought he was oh. untouchable. And, and the story is that he was actually at dinner and Al Capone beat him to death with a baseball bat to make a point. So, so, so you know, he wasn't the only guy who thought that, you know, he was untouchable. Yeah. Who ended up being uh, maybe not as, a, a as little, safe as he was. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, maybe touchable. Yeah, so I, it is, so I mean, it is interesting, interesting because it's not, because there was no, there was no bodyguard. There was no, I mean, he was, he, he apparently, yeah. you know, had no idea that a hit was put out on him and that he was unsafe where he was. And, and you know, they, but I mean, and he was, he was armed, but apparently not so on guard that yeah, he that was. Yeah, that he had his weapon out, yeah. 
he was running the the flower shop. He, it was him there running yeah. the flower shop. It's not like he had someone else. It it's just an interesting thing because you know you, now you look back at the mobsters and you think that they had some sense that their own lives were were in danger. But maybe that really was just a point where uh, at least the guys at the top were feeling like they were you know yeah. gentlemen I, 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 and wouldn't just or shoot you know each other. You, you didn't want a war. I mean I, this. His yeah. death, you know, Banyan's murder really started and incited a gang war that was very, very violent that Torio certainly didn't want. Uh, and that uh, uh, so you can see why he thought oh, no one's going to pick that fight. I mean, no one's that crazy. And, you know, uh, he had pushed. Yeah, he just pushed some people too far. And uh, he had he had. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he really was, was doing I mean, he was being aggressive. And so yeah. that's part of why it's interesting that he was he he felt secure enough uh, that he didn't even have to. I mean, he was in public, essentially, yeah. uh, without. Being but concerned. when if there was a fight going on, he had picked that fight. You think he would? He would know? Yeah, yeah. I know. You obviously don't know what's going through his head at the time, but it is interesting that as a mob hit against a, as a, a powerful mob figure, uh, Lily, all they had to do was walk into his business and shoot him, and he and he didn't take any yeah. steps to protect himself. Yeah. Just that that really kind of stuck out to me in this episode. I it it also was kind of interesting to me, and I think maybe um, stands against what you might expect is that despite being a mobster and a killer, uh, he seems to have been quite popular among Chicagoans. Well, I mean, that's that's not a surprise. I mean, the, the, I mean, they were also, I mean, they were the protector of the neighborhood and uh, they, you know, you certainly didn't want to cross them. And so uh, almost all the time you see it that when one of these mobsters dies, that there's a, that there's a huge outpouring because uh, uh, in some ways they were kind of Robin Hoods uh, and in some ways they were protection from corrupt government and corrupt police. Uh, and certainly they were, you know, everybody in their, their territory was paying fealty of some sort. Uh, and you know, of course, everybody cries when the king dies, even if the king was, a, you know, was a terrible king, was a, was a tyrant. So I mean, it's it's not surprising. I mean, you know, he, he, when he died, the Catholic Church wouldn't let him be buried in consecrated ground, and he had to, essentially they had to That's get a, a childhood friend of a priest to come and say any prayers over him. Uh, and uh, but uh, so I mean, it's not surprising that there were people that mourned him, and and you know, because it's kind of what he expected. And his gang, Northside gang, still remained powerful. So obviously, you wanted to make sure you were showing your your loyalty there. So yeah, you yeah. didn't want to be the one who looks like. Yeah, you didn't want to be the one that looked like you're happy the king was dead because it was you know whoever was left was also going to be have been his supporters. Yeah. So yeah, I mean clearly you know, line up around the block for his funeral. I mean that's I, and yeah. that's part of the weird irony of the day. You know, is that that you could be both a hero and a villain. It's interesting too in this story that it, it ends up playing kind of a direct role in how Al Capone actually kind of comes to be in charge of that. Very much but, direct, yeah. I mean, Torrio essentially yeah. leaves immediately after this, and then the Chicago gang rises, and uh, and and it's it starts the. I mean, this this is starts the path that will lead to the St. Valentine's Day massacre, and so really, uh, you know, this is this is a, a spark. You know, it's kind of like you know the killing of the archduke i mean this is this is uh, there's clearly tension going on there's clearly uh, a realization that there's enough money involved over territory i mean as torio was always yeah. trying to trying to prevent war by by splitting territory and stuff like that it's a realization that there you know there was just too much involved to say that you wanted to push into someone else's territory uh, that it was going to turn violent and this is the spark that probably set that off yeah. and it ended up not going well for the organization that obanion really started the north side gang there I mean, in the end, you know, they were devastated in the in the Valentine's Day massacre. Yeah. Oh, and it's unfortunate for them to just be, have been on the side that they were. But it was, uh, I guess, if you're going to choose that life. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, it, we'll get there in a second. But it's it's interesting that no one was ever convicted of the Valentine's Day massacre. But I mean, with the real reason being that by that point, pretty much everybody they thought might be involved was already dead. 
you know so i mean it, it, it yeah. was just a bloody you know a bloody war uh and yeah it's you know so you're you're i mean uh you were choosing a life i mean you were definitely you know live by the sword die by the sword at that point yes and i wonder if that's one of the reasons obanion didn't protect himself is maybe he just kind of accepted the risks of the of the position I would imagine just hubris. I mean, I imagine he just thought that he was too big and too important for anybody to do like him. Something like, like just walk up and shoot him. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? Uh, I I watch a lot. I, I really enjoy Magellan, and uh, we were just talking about a great Civil War series that we talked about on the YouTube channel. The one I kind of stumbled on here because I thought it was interesting is, is called Follow Your Nose, uh, which is a documentary about the importance of your olfactory sense. And it, it just struck me because, of course, one of the primary symptoms of COVID-19 uh, is that you might lose a sense of smell. Uh, and uh, so this is, just talks about the importance. I mean, it, it really did surprise me. Uh, and uh, one of the things that was, it's really kind of funny how much your senses work together and, and uh uh, how much suggestion works for smell. I mean, you never really think about, you know, closing your eyes and trying to smell something. So there was an example where where they're doing a test, but she, she holds up a jar and says, smell this, what is it? And the woman's not really sure. And then she, she, uh, she's got a box or block in the view, and then she, she takes out a jar and she says, smell this. This is human vomit. And the woman makes this disgusted face and says, oh, it's disgusting. Well, it's the same, it's same jar. Uh, and, and and her reaction was completely different when she was told what the smell was as opposed to when she was just smelling it. So it's really kind of, it, it's just, uh, uh, you know, there's so much on Magellan TV. I guess that you call it a science episode. I'm a lot in there that I just did not know about your olfactory sense. It's just one of those rabbit holes you can go down in, in Magellan TV. Everything's interesting. Yeah, they always manage to make, well, and they, they just choose subjects that you don't necessarily think a lot about, yeah. uh, which I think is one of the great things about uh, Magellan TV and documentaries in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I mean, you never, I mean, whether you want science or true crime or, or natural science or, you know, history, there's just a huge amount of history also on Magellan TV. It's all there. And it's always interesting. So what have you you've been watching lately? So one of the things that I just watched uh, just just today, actually, was about this this New Zealander who I was not familiar with, but who has who's done a lot of television stuff, apparently, in the in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, Nigel Latta. I think, or Nigel Lotta, uh, and it's just called Nigel Lotta Blows Stuff Up, and uh, it is a heck of a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It is a heck of a lot of fun. So the one, uh, the one, my favorite one that I watched was about uh, explosions, and what he's doing is he's looking at uh, kind of the differences between uh, a real explosion and a Hollywood explosion, right. and it's actually really, really interesting kind of how they talk about it, and he talks about the science, and then, of course, he blows stuff up, so... Yeah. <laughs> I, so, so I mean, it, but the topic isn't really the actually blow things up. It's that he actually is is investigating things. That's what he means by blowing up. Yes, things. he doesn't always. You know, it's it's. I was watching a MythBusters episode the other day, and and uh, Adam was complaining uh, that they were trying to blow something up, and they had originally hired they hired these experts at blowing stuff up, and really they didn't know how to blow anything up. I mean, what they know how to do is how to make a spectacular looking explosion, which is usually done with you know gas, but they don't know how to blow stuff yeah. up. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership, or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy is going to talk about ballistics expert Dr. Calvin Goddard and the work he did on the Valentine's Day Massacre case. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. 
On Thursday, February 14th, 1929, at approximately 10.30 in the morning, seven men were murdered in a garage on North Clark Street in the Lincoln Park area of Chicago's north side. The St. Valentine's Day massacre represented the crescendo in Chicago's bloody mob wars during the era of Prohibition, and it shocked the nation, so much so that the city of Chicago finally had to take extraordinary action to address the crime and violence that was tarnishing the city's reputation. And yet, despite their efforts, the perpetrators were never positively identified, and the crime remains officially unsolved. Still, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre represents one of the first high-profile applications of the still-new science of forensic ballistics, and much of what we know about the crime has to do with the efforts of a pioneer in the field that transformed the way that the nation and the world investigates crime, Dr. Calvin Goddard. The son of an army officer, Calvin Hooker Goddard, was born in Baltimore in 1891. He earned his medical degree from Johns Hopkins University and studied military medicine at the U.S. Army Medical School in Washington, D.C. Dr. Goddard served with the Army Medical Corps in France, Germany, and Poland during the First World War, achieving the rank of lieutenant colonel. In 1920, he resigned his commission and worked in hospital administration. Goddard had had a keen interest in firearms since he was a child, and he began applying his expertise to the emerging science of firearms identification. Goddard helped to develop the science that proved that every weapon makes characteristic marks on a bullet and a cartridge shell, and that they are the same every time that the gun is fired. Science has shown, Goddard said, that bullet markings are as valuable as fingerprints. He helped to design important instruments for the study of firearms, notably the helixometer, or an adapted medical device used for looking inside the body, which Goddard used to examine defects in the rifling inside a gun barrel. He also created the comparison microscope, which is essentially two microscopes connected by an optical bridge, allowing for a split view of two samples. This allowed a direct comparison of the unique marks and striations left on bullets and cartridges by rifling grooves, firing pins, and extractor claws. Both devices represented significant advances in the science of firearm identification, and he published a paper describing these advances in the journal Army Ordnance in 1925. He became famous enough in the field of forensic ballistics, a term that he himself coined, that he resigned his medical position and co-founded the Bureau of Forensic Ballistics in New York City. The Bureau was the United States' first independent criminalistics laboratory, the laboratory brought not just ballistics, but also fingerprinting, blood analysis, and trace evidence under one roof. The Bureau also published a journal called the American Journal of Police Science. Despite the lab's strong reputation, it struggled as a business, as police departments in the U.S. largely lacked the sophistication needed to understand and utilize its services at the time. Goddard gained a national reputation in 1927, when he was used as an expert in the infamous murder trial of anarchist Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. Sacco and Vanzetti had been accused of two murders that had occurred during the commission of an armed robbery in 1920. They had been convicted by a jury in July of 1921 in a trial marred by accusations of bias by both the trial judge and members of the jury, as well as questions about the firearms experts. While defense attorneys sought a new trial, Dr. Goddard offered to test the bullets using the most current methods of forensic ballistics, and definitely tied the fatal bullet and shell casing to a 32 caliber Colt automatic pistol owned by Sacco. Goddard was called on again when Massachusetts Governor Alvin T. Fuller established a commission to investigate the fairness of the trial. Subsequent examinations using newer methods were conducted in 1935, 1961, and 1983, and all have confirmed Goddard's results. However, some argue that the police had tampered with the evidence by switching the bullets. Still, after two appeals to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, 
In the review by the Lowell Committee, the verdicts were upheld and Sacco and Vanzetti were executed in August of 1927. But Goddard would soon be involved in another, even higher profile case. At approximately 10.30 in the morning on February 14, 1929, five members and two associates of Chicago's Northside Gang had gathered in a garage on 2212 North Clark Street in Chicago called the SMC Cartage Company. The Northside Gang was largely an Irish-American criminal organization that had developed from a street gang at the turn of the century and prospered under prohibition. Tension with Southside gangs, notably the Italian-American organization of Johnny Torrio, eventually called the Chicago Outfit, had resulted in the murder of Northside gang leader Dean O'Banion in November of 1924, and the two organizations had been at war, interrupted by temporary truces, ever since. By February 1929, George Bugs Moran was the leader of the Northside gang, and the war had again flared up with Al Capone, then the leader of the Chicago Outfit. A series of tit-for-tat killings had occurred, most recently the murder of Capone advisor and president of the politically influential fraternal order, the Italian-American National Union, Tony the Scourge Lombardo, in September. There are various stories as for why these men were meeting, with the most common being that they'd been offered a load of bootleg beer at a good price. That was likely a setup. Moran himself was late. Some stories claimed that he had to wait longer than expected while getting a haircut. Upon arriving, he saw a police car out front. He assumed that the members of the gang were being shaken down by the Chicago police and walked away. Moments later, several witnesses heard what sounded like rapid gunfire, and others watched as two police officers let out two or three men at gunpoint. All then left in a police car described as one of those used by the Chicago Detective Bureau. That was the car that had scared off Bugs Moran. Other witnesses reported at least one more such car driving by. Police later speculated that two men dressed as police had disarmed the group, who likely assumed this was simply a shakedown for money, and made them stand up against the wall in the garage. The three other men had entered the garage, spraying the seven men with bursts of gunfire. The two dressed as police then escorted two of the killers out, pretending that they were being arrested, while a third man retrieved the second car parked behind the garage. A neighbor, who had heard what they thought was gunfire and a dog barking, a German shepherd was tied up in the garage but not hurt, went to investigate. Inside the garage, still reeking gun smoke, were six dead men. Among the dead were Moran's second command, and also the gang's bookkeeper and business manager. But Northside gang enforcer Frank Gusenberg was still clinging to life. Gusenberg was taken to a hospital and briefly stabilized, but when asked by police to identify his killers, refused to break the code of silence. One account had him saying, nobody, nobody shot me, despite his 14 bullet wounds. He died a few hours later. The murders, quickly dubbed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre by the press, shocked both Chicago and the nation. Chicago city leadership had to respond. While the Chicago Police Detectives Bureau started their investigation, the Cook County State's Attorney, suspecting that the police may be involved, also started an independent investigation. Meanwhile, the Cook County Coroner, Dr. Herman Bundesen, impaneled a Blue Ribbon Commission to investigate the case. Thus, three different investigations were going at the same time. The six members of the coroner's jury included leading citizens like Bert A. Massey, president of the Colgate Palmolive Company, Colonel A. A. Sprague, the Chicago Commissioner of Public Works, Walter E. Olson, owner of the Olson Rug Company, and Dr. John McCormick, Dean of the Loyola University Law School. Bundesen had been careful. Before the bodies were taken to the morgue, Bundesen ordered that dozens of photographs be taken and that all shells, bullets, and bullet fragments be gathered and preserved. They were carefully cataloged and placed in sealed envelopes to protect the evidence. Much of that evidence has been preserved. 
Cornish jury member Bert Massey had heard of Dr. Goddard and knew that his expertise would be valuable to help make sense of the evidence and determine which weapons had been used to commit the murders. When told that there was no money available to hire Goddard, Massey, together with Olson, used their own private funds to hire Goddard's services on behalf of the panel. As the Chicago Police Department was still suspect, at Bendison's suggestion, Goddard set up a lab under the auspices of the Northwestern University Law School. Goddard was able to determine from the slugs taken from the victims and the shell casings recovered from the scene that 70 45 caliber slugs had come from two Thompson submachine guns, one firing 50 rounds from a drum magazine and the other 20 rounds from a box magazine. A 12-gauge shotgun was also used. Goddard was then able to obtain and test fire all the Thompson submachine guns owned by the Chicago police in their suburbs. His analysis determined that the slugs did not come from any of the police weapons. Meanwhile, police have been searching for what they considered to be their best suspect, a man named Fred Burke. Burke was a swindler, armed robber, and contract killer suspected in many notorious crimes. He had been a member of the Egan's Rats gang of St. Louis and had done contract work for the Detroit Purple Gang before having a falling out with them. He had then moved to Chicago, where he had formed an association with Capone and the Chicago Outfit. Burke had become a suspect in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre because two witnesses had encountered one of the men pretending to be police and had reported that one was conspicuously missing two front teeth. That led police to immediately suspect Burke. Police in St. Louis confirmed that, in addition to the missing teeth, Burke had been known to impersonate a police officer while committing crimes. Knowing that he was a suspect, Burke had gone into hiding in Michigan under the name Frederick Dane. But he slipped up in December when he got into a minor traffic accident in St. Joseph, Michigan. Burke tried to flee the scene, but the other driver followed him and alerted a local police officer. When the officer stepped on the running board of his car, Burke, who was drunk at the time, panicked and shot and killed 25-year-old patrolman Charles Skelly. Burke managed to escape the resulting manhunt, but a search of his home in St. Joseph turned up a small arsenal, including sawed-off shotguns, revolvers, tear gas, bulletproof vests, a high-powered automatic rifle, and two Thompson submachine guns. The guns were taken to Goddard, who was able to definitively determine that they were the two guns used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Goddard was also able to identify one of the guns as being the weapon used to murder Brooklyn gangster Frankie Yale in July of 1928. Yale had been killed in a blazing shootout in which four men in a Buick fired into his car. Yale had been hit with both a shotgun blast and bullets from a Thompson submachine gun. It was the first use of a Tommy gun in a gangland killing in New York City. Yale and Capone had been friends, but Capone had figured out that Yale had been hijacking liquor shipments from him. The fact that the same gun that was used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre had been used to kill Frankie Yale further implicated Capone. Ironically, Yale was suspected of being one of the men who had murdered Dean O'Banion in 1924, working on behalf of Johnny Torrio and Al Capone, although police did not have enough evidence to arrest him. That murder sparked the war that had finally resulted in the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Fred Killer Burke was finally caught in Green City, Missouri in 1931, turned in by an amateur detective who had seen his photograph in True Detective magazine. He was extradited back to Michigan where he was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Officer Skelly. For reasons that aren't completely clear, he was never sent back to Chicago to answer questions in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre killings. It's possible that Chicago officials, realizing that he was going to be spending life in prison anyway, and that most of the other suspects had already been killed in gangland violence, just didn't see it as being valuable. They said he simply wanted to put the massacre behind them. Burke died in prison in 1940. 
Despite all his findings, Dr. Goddard's evidence didn't result in a conviction. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre still remains officially unsolved, but still identifying the guns from which the bolts were fired left little doubt in historians' mind that it was the work of the Capone organization, although it's still unclear whether Al Capone ordered the killings directly. The case that roiled the nation resulted in the federal effort to get Capone, which finally resulted in a seven-year imprisonment for violations of prohibition and tax evasion. He was released in 1939, but by then was disabled by complications from syphilis and never played a significant role in organized crime again. He died in 1947, a man destroyed by the terrible massacre committed on his behalf. The two Thompson submachine guns that were used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre are still in the possession of the Barron County, Michigan's Sheriff's Department. Much of the evidence, including bullets, fragments, shells, corner reports, and the wall from the SMC Cartage Company against which the massacre occurred, still showing bullet pockmarks, are on display at the Mob Museum, the National Museum of Organized Crime and Law Enforcement, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Bugs Moran was unable to control his gang after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and the Northside Gang never fully recovered. Eventually, he sank back into petty crime and was arrested multiple times, ended up dying in prison in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, in 1957. Dr. Goddard's work on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre helped to establish the credibility of the field of forensic ballistics, which is critical to the investigation of crime today. He remained in charge of the Northwestern Lab, where they made several advancements, not just in firearms identification, but also the analysis of fibers and hair, and serology, the study of blood evidence. When World War II came, he was called back to active duty and ended up in occupied Japan where he established the Criminal Investigation Laboratory for the Far East Command under General Douglas MacArthur. He died of heart disease in 1955. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre is famous, of course, but you kind of take a really interesting angle to examine this kind of forgotten piece of it. How did you come to tell Calvin Goddard's story specifically? Well, I mean, you start with, I mean, we, it is a channel on Forgotten History, so we do look for a spin like that. But actually, this was recommended to us by the people, the good people at the Mob Museum, which is in Las Vegas. Uh, we had started talking to them. They'd seen, I think, maybe the Dino Banyan episode. Uh, and uh, they were talking about maybe we could coordinate on some stuff. And I, and I think they suggested the Calvin Goddard topic. And we're able to provide for us uh, some of the media and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's one of the great things about this job is that we've gotten to work with these, uh, I mean, they're an affiliate of the Smithsonian, uh, and uh, with these great museums and historians and the USS Texas and things like that. And uh, the, and uh, those are people that as a historian you just love to meet and you love to talk to. And so I, I would think that was their suggestion to talk about Calvin Goddard. Uh, they have actually collected over there at the Mob Museum uh, much of the uh, of the things that were collected as part of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The bullets are still in the envelopes, and they've got the envelopes with them in it. Wow. And they have collected most of the, the actual wall was collected, and they have most of the wall. Hmm. Uh, the, it was sold at one point piece by piece, so they they've collected back most of the bricks that have the bullet holes in them or the chips in them from when they were machine gun and, and St. Valentine's Day. So one of the great things to see if you're, if you're there in, in uh, Las Vegas uh, at the museum, which is a fantastic museum uh, down in the old courthouse, uh, is the is the wall and a lot of the a lot of the forensics evidence that Calvin Goddard collected. So it was their idea, and I think it was a really great spin because I think he's a really interesting guy who is just not well known. Uh, and uh, so it was one of those things that we love about the history guys that you find out things you probably didn't know even about something you thought you knew a lot about. 
Well, this, I mean, it, it is really cool that they have the actual wall because that's, I mean, or at least a rather good chunk of it. It's, now, it's one of those all, things yeah, that you There's would... a hole here and there when you look at it, but they actually collected, took a lot of effort to to put together the actual wall that they were shot against. So you go to the mob in there and you can see the wall that was that where the guys were stood up when they shot, when they shot them. You can see a picture of them, you know, comparison to the wall. You can see uh, some of the actual bullets actual were used to were, you know, collected there in the in the the, the actual forensics work. And that's that's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, especially I mean they they've got this wall what a thousand miles away from where the actual crime occurred. It's it's uh, it's amazing that they're able to preserve that kind of thing and that you can go see it now. I mean yeah. that's just that's just incredible. Yeah, and you know um, that in that building too, there was a key fopper hearing in that building, and they and they have that room still you know preserved. And I mean it's not the only thing there that's a that's a fantastic piece of mob history. It's really yeah. if I know you have a lot to do if you're in Las Vegas, but take some extra time. I'll hop in a cab, go up to the north side of the Strip, and go to the Mob Museum. It is a fantastic museum with a fantastic collection. It's run by fantastic people. It's a great uh, – it was just great fun. It's just great to do. They've even got an operating speakeasy down in the basement, so you can even go there and have a drink because it is Las Vegas still, right? So, Of course. Yeah, I, I think that this was this was one of the, the earliest ones. I, I don't know if it was the first one, but one of the early ones that you did with – the mob museum and I, I mean how has it been to work with them has that been really cool it you know it's it is a lot of fun uh to work with any of these museums we've had a great experience with all of them and the people who really care about history and uh for the most part they've come to us i mean uh, we haven't gone to them and say hey will you please work with us they they saw the history guy and they liked it and so and uh, uh you know great one i mean i've, I've I've been to to uh, Dorset to work with the Tank Museum in Dorset, top tank museum of the world. And, and uh, when they first contacted me, she's like, "I don't know if you've heard of us." Well, yeah, I, I've actually been there. Uh, yeah, we were. Uh, we I remember standing there with my hands on the fence, waiting for it to open because we were there before it opened. You know, and they were like on the chain link fence, wanting to go in. And uh, uh, or the USS Texas. I mean, we've been down parts of the Texas that other people don't get to go in. Uh, and so we we yeah. actually had a chance to go out to Las Vegas and walk around the Mob Museum and and. Uh, uh, it's a fantastic museum, and they were—they're just wonderful, gracious people. They really care about the history that they're preserving, uh, and so they're a joy to work with, and they're a good fit. There's so many stories; they're a good fit for what we do on our channel. Uh, and uh, I've, I've—I wish oh, I'm sorry. I've written a couple of them mm -hmm. uh, for with uh, mob-related stuff with them, and I, I agree they've just always been really wonderful to work with. Mm -hmm. They're passionate about what they what they do and the kind of history they're collecting, and it's—I I mean, for myself. I find it just incredibly fortunate to be able to do that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the dream. <laughs> this is, we're living the dream with this. Uh, and, but, I mean, you bring up something there. I'm not sure that most people know, but Josh writes for the channel. Actually, I think his title is Senior Writer. doesn't just do the podcast. Uh, the channel, uh, I write a good number of the scripts, but the channel is scripted. I mean, I don't just go in and make stuff up. I mean, we, we have a script when we go in. There's several people that write scripts, but most of the scripts are written by myself or Josh, who's the lead writer. Uh, and especially one of the assignments that Josh has, aside from writing a number of the scripts is that if we're working with a museum usually there's a process where we send the script for approval and that takes some time uh, and so we put you kind of in charge of that you're in charge of our relationships with museums so we did some with the mob museum before you were a full-time employee but uh, uh now you're the one that gets to work with those and yeah it's i mean you know what an honor i mean i'm a dude in my basement right and and uh, and that this, yeah. the smithsonian affiliate is is happy to have me tell their story that's it's great and they're wonderful people it's been really cool mm -hmm. um we we've done some stuff with noah and so uh i mean one of the one of the ones yeah, that i did that's though, the national oceanic and atmospheric administration yes. we weren't actually working with the guy about the yep. ark but yes uh, yeah <laughs> uh but so we we've done some work with them and uh they've they contact because they've 
they're with the government so they can contact these people who are you know actually in charge of uh, mm -hmm. some of the preservation of these sites and stuff like that so i mean i've gotten to talk to uh when the last one we did actually involved the navy and so one of the dudes it was like it was a commander at, mm -hmm. at, at a naval base or something like that so mm -hmm. who who was check, uh, reading through the script to make sure it's uh, we we make sure they want to read through it so it says you know everything they want to say if they know anything especially if there's anything incorrect mm -hmm. um which just to make sure that or if there's anything that they see they think is unclear that kind of stuff uh but it, it's it's been really really cool to work with some people who uh, oh yeah I, I i would be excited to meet under pretty much any yeah. circumstance that was we had a meeting because the guy that the the uh, guy that actually contacted us from noah actually is a pilot that flies the planes into the hurricanes and part of the time he's that and part of the time he's in charge of their public relations and so we were on the call and you and i were like you know ah and they were like oh this is the history guy ah and yeah we were all we were all kind of starstruck it's kind of funny yeah it's we've got to work they fly into hurricanes it's like that's yes, that's it's, awesome yes. like that seems like a really really i make youtube videos in my basement you fly airplanes into hurricanes so yeah so yeah it, we've gotten to work with some fantastic people and i i love uh, the uh indianapolis motor speed museum and i mean there's so many yeah, so. i couldn't even possibly i'd have to sit and think of everybody that we've got to work with and to thank them all but for every one of them i, I mean you've made this channel so rich and you've made this job so rich because we get to uh we get to do what we really enjoy which is talk about history and that's what makes this job such a such a fulfilling job uh, it's great that we're bringing history to the masses and it's great that people are willing yeah. to bring history to us because of that the mob museum was kind of the first of the big institutions that really went to work with us we're very happy with everything that we've done with the mob museum wonderful people thank everybody there so much uh for the time that we've had and i hope that we've brought some attention to that absolutely fantastic museum with fantastic collection for sure. And if, if you're in Las Vegas, I have not actually been to it myself, uh, but I if the next time I find myself in Vegas, I definitely will be going. I know so I, you, I when you're in Vegas, it. there's so much to do. There's so much to think to do, but it is so worth your time to grab, grab a cab. Cabs are cheap in Vegas and go on up and watch uh, go to the mob museum, spend a couple hours there. Uh, you could spend, you know, half day there or more if you want to. I mean, but uh, it's, I think there were three floors in the in the, the speakeasy in the basement. Uh, but it's I mean, there's there's no museum like it anywhere else, really, in terms of their collection and what they have and what it means. So, and and good people to work with just all around. Just it's been a wonderful experience. So. Coming back to the uh, the episode, I, I did think it's interesting. I mean, this of course this kind of ties in with the with the beer wars as well, like the last episode. Uh, but I do think it's interesting that some of the very same men that were involved in the mm -hmm. Dino Banyan killing were played some significant roles in this one as well. Yeah, I mean, in various different ways. Obviously, the Banyan killing eventually is what leads to Al Capone taking over the Chicago gang. Al Capone is almost certainly the person that ordered the Valentine's Massacre. So, I mean, it does. But there is actually one fellow, Scalise, uh, who is one of the primary suspects to have been one of the men there doing the shooting, who is also almost certainly one of the two that shot Dino Banyan. Uh, who also might be the dude that uh, he that Al Capone beat to death with a baseball bat. So I mean, you know, in between. So uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, these are the same players. They're all running around in, in Chicago, and so, so there's a lot of the same players that are involved. And it's it's interesting. I wonder if we had had Calvin Goddard uh, at the time of the O'Banion killing, if that might have changed. You know, if the, if the police might have been able to impact this war. It's different. It's hard to say because there was a lot of corruption in the police department, and you know, throughout it. Oh. Here's, here's one of the most interesting connections between them, is that Dino Banyan had gone to Colorado, and in Colorado, he had tested out a Tommy gun. 
He brought three back to Chicago, and he didn't get a chance to use them before he got he, he got whacked. Uh, is that what they call it? You know, he got hit before he was killed. <laughs> but he is, and those machine guns, those Tommy guns, ended up being used in the war there. So he is he is generally seen to be the guy that brought Tommy guns into the Chicago beer wars, and of course, Tommy guns used in the Valentine's Day massacre to essentially put an end to the North Side gang that he had started. So that's an interesting connection between them. So there are some various connections, and, and uh, uh, the, the guy. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the the, the other one, the uh, the one that they caught in Michigan. I'm going to forget his name here. I mean, there's a lot, but he had been part of the. He had been in Detroit. He'd been uh, he'd been in uh, St. Louis. He had. Been, I mean, you know, the. I mean, this was the, you know the mob community was yeah. not a huge community. It was, and so they do you know they do show up, uh, and in different ways. Uh, and so it's not a surprise that you have an overlap. It's the same fight. It's the same war going on. You know, this is this is the the two yeah. are in the part of the same fight between the the, the Northside Gang and the Chicago outfit. It's amazing how that that violence just kind of spills out into so many different things. Um, it, ultimately, this episode on Calvin Goddard is has a lot to do with the beginning of ballistics mm-hmm. and us really kind of looking at that kind of stuff. And it's amazing. I think we uh, I think we've really kind of taken for granted today that we can do that kind of stuff that we can figure out for instance you know whether and which gun fired what Mm -hmm. and this is really where that began and it was Mm -hmm. goddard that played a huge role in making it happen he literally coined the term forensics ballistics even though he said he admitted that that didn't really describe the whole profession he he coined the term yeah he his his significance is i mean it's it's hard to overstate he wasn't the first person that did forensic testing and and the uh but uh i mean his his first contribution scientifically was to to have a microscope that that compared the two bullets side by side so that you could see that the scoring was the same but uh really what he brought to the entire field of forensic study because he was also very important in serology and the study of blood types and and which we use a lot in in forensics too but uh what he really did is he brought the scientific approach uh, that brought, I mean, prior to that, really, it was uh, charlatans. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It wasn't a scientific field. He brought a scientific credibility, cachet to it, that made it so that judges would start to accept it as evidence uh, that has become so commonplace today. I mean, now, you know, we figure out what people are and who people are using methods that would not have been accepted in courts uh, were it not for Calvin Goddard. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.